with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 13th, 2018. It's Friday the 13th! Oh God, we're all gonna die! That doesn't mean anything, you know that. But it is a day that something really, really bad happened in history, and that's why we have this superstition. Anyway, we're not going to be really talking about that today, as it is a Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. <laughs> it's a good day, right? Anyway, since it's Friday, we will be doing the Expert Council Q&A show. I have a good lineup for you guys today. I have how internet connection speeds affect crypto mining with Benjamin Fitz of Crypto Gulch. I have the dark side of beekeeping. Fads for sale with Michael Jordan. I have understanding safety protocols so you don't get run over with a tractor. Is it just me or like the last two? Could we not make them work with uh, Friday the 13th theme? Understanding the dark side of beekeeping and how not to get your head cut off with your own tractor. And with Darby Simpson, how cannibalist legalization has impacted crime rates with Dan Omen, keeping a pond from freezing solid in very cold environments with Jeff Lawton, dealing with an infestation of ladybugs in an RV with Gary Collins, on cooking school and cookware with Keith Snow. Keith Snow, I don't think we can make that sound... Uh, you know, dangerous or anything. Uh, dealing with a clogged up and backed up flow through wicking bed with Jack Spierko. And since that one's pretty easy, I also have a question on making a decision to quit your job for what we're going to call the Uber economy. If that doesn't make sense, it will when we get to that question. And uh, so we have a really good lineup for you guys today. Um, I wanted to, uh, again, just take a minute and let you guys know about a little project that we're doing called Biltong for Breakfast. You can find it at, I know, shocking enough, biltongforbreakfast.com. I didn't channel my inner Stephen Harris and make it biltong1234.com. He probably owns that already. But it's a pretty cool site. We're doing this cooking show. It's not your, it's not your dad's cooking show, man. It's not your brother's cooking show. It's not any cooking show I think that you would be familiar with. Uh, me and my buddy David and just hanging out on the back porch and cooking some really good stuff and showing you how to do it, taking it to an elevated level, but having a good time while we're doing it. Uh, I really do think it's something different than anybody else is doing out there online or on TV either way, and uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. And uh, we've taken some steps recently. We've increased the production value of it, and we're doing other little side things there other than just the show. Like we're doing... Foraged Merry Wednesdays. What is for? So I I was out last Wednesday and uh, in the backyard and decided you know what this is a great beautiful day, it's a good day for a Bloody Mary. So I went in and mixed up a Bloody Mary and I was about to go into the produce drawer and get out the jar of asparagus and stuff and start garnishing it up. And I thought, well, I have this stolen purple carrot from David. I stole it from him last time he was at the house, and. Uh, Then uh, I can add that, but let's. What, what, it was stolen carrot and foraged garnishes. So I went out and got some uh, watercress and lamb's quarter and some other stuff. And then I decided, why don't we do this every Wednesday? 
So the uh, the foraged Mary of yesterday has been put up on the site today, and cool stuff like that. I did a video also yesterday that was put out. It's on uh, acorn squash soup that I uh, that I have talked about on the air here, and some modifications to it that have made it really great. And uh, that's like a four minute video with just background music and all. So it's pretty cool, man. So. If you haven't done so yet, come on over and check out Bill Tong for Breakfast, the cooking show that will make you laugh and make you want to cook, too, at the same time. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into your questions for the expert counsel. Remember, the way that you uh, send in a question for the expert counsel is real easy. Just email that question to me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC expert in the subject line, and uh, then give me your question for the council member. Tell me who it's for as well. Do that like one or two sentences. Hit the return key a couple times and give any pertinent details. Don't skimp on the details, but do get the question out up front. That's the best way to be clear in what you're asking and for, for you to get the best answer possible from a council member. Uh, the first question we have today is for Benjamin Fitz of Crypto Gulch. And it's on how internet connection speeds affect mining. Ben, take it away. Hi, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners. This is Ben Fitz from Crypto Gulch with an expert council question on cryptocurrency. And the question is, how important is the internet connection to crypto mining? We live in an area that has no high-speed internet. Our only option is using the hotspot on our cell phones. Should I even try to use my computer to attempt mining? And that question comes from David somewhere in the remote regions of Florida. Okay, so um, let's talk about mining in general. You don't download a lot of files. You don't need a, a lot of bandwidth. You know, you don't need a 100 megabit connection. Um, what you do need is a connection that's always on 24-7 because your computer is constantly going to be mining and sending shares. It should be sending shares several times a minute back to the pool. It's just a small chunk that it sends back to the pool. It's a small chunk that says, I completed this work. Here is the hash, which is the proof of, that I completed this amount of work. Um and that hash is, I don't know, 30, 60, however many characters long. It's it's short. It's not that long. Um, so that's what's sent back and forth constantly from your computer, small chunks of data. The biggest thing that matters is that it, you don't want it to take a long time to get that data to the destination, which is the mining pool you're mining on. You want to get it there as fast as possible. And that's something called latency. And it determines like where in the U.S. you are and, and things like that. If you're on a satellite internet or cell phone internet, um, it might not work that well. Um, actually, at the warehouse here at Crypto Gulch, you know, before we had Time Warner cable, we were on um, a radio slash microwave type connection. It's not the not the fastest connection, um, but sometimes you you know you have to do what you have to do, and so you probably could mine on your hotspot. Um, keep in mind that it needs to be on 24-7, and it could add to your charges from your cell phone company. You could get a big bill from your cell phone company that makes it not worth mining. Now, there is occasionally large files that need to be downloaded when you're mining, but it's not all the time. 
most of the time you're just sending these small chunks that says this hash that says I completed this work. Um, that's why we call it hash rates in mining. So you send the hash that says I completed this work back to the pool. The pool says, great, thank you, and sends you a new piece of work. Um, and that's small chunks of data. Depending on the coin you're mining, you will occasionally download larger chunks of data. If you're mining Ethereum, for example, Ethereum has what's called a DAG file. And DAG stands for, let's see, it stands for Directed Acyclic Graph. I'm guessing. I don't know. I've tried pronouncing that a few times. Um, but anyway, DAG is... Basically, a large amount of data that enables you to do the work of mining. It's not the entire blockchain. The entire Ethereum blockchain is much larger, but the DAG is kind of like a key set of that data that is downloaded and allows the miners to do the work. That DAG file currently in Ethereum is 2.37 gigabytes. 2.37 gigabyte file is downloaded to each of your mining computers, and it's stored in the memory on the video card. So the good news is it's stored in the memory on your video card, and if your computer doesn't get reset, it's stored in the memory until it's downloaded again. It's downloaded every 100 hours, I believe, if my math is correct, that's every four days and four hours, a new DAG file is generated and it's downloaded again. So you're only downloading that big file every four days, and if your computers are not being reset, they're not being downloaded very often. Um, so, But you are downloading a big file every four days, and if you have multiple mining rigs, it's being downloaded multiple times for each of the rigs, and, you know, that stuff exaggerates it a little bit. Um, but again, the main thing is having that always-on connection. Also, since we are talking about DAG files, it affects the size of the video card that you use on your computer. You want to have at least a 3-gigabyte video card or 4-gigabyte card because the DAG file is already 2.37 gigabytes, and it will fill that card up pretty quickly, and it won't be useful for mining. So... Um, Again, the main thing is having that always-on internet connection that's really fast. It doesn't necessarily matter that it's a super high-speed connection or not, um, as long as it's always on and connected. And make sure you're not running up your cell phone bill using your cell phone hotspot. This is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch. Thank you, and back to you, Jack. Okay, so good stuff from Ben there. Next, I have a question for Michael Jordan on, you know, some of these fads like the uh, the jar hive super thing that he's going to talk about, the flow hive and things like that. And I'll come back with a little bit of my thoughts on it. Hey, this is your beekeeping pocket companion, Michael Jordan from AB Friendly Company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your calls on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. David Oswald has a question on hives and fads. His question is, Michael, I've sent in a link, and I want to know, is this a new fad after the flow hive? I don't do bees yet, and something is screaming at me that this is a bad idea. Good sales idea, but bad beekeeping idea, I feel. What say you, Michael? Well, what he's talking about is the link is called summerhawkranch.com. All one word, summerhawkranch.com. 
and then he's looking at the uh, comb jar. Um, so let's get some facts out about all of this and, and what's going on. The flow hive, as people call it, was made in 1940 by J.B. Garcia in Spain. The frames were made of metal, unlike today of the frames made by Stuart and Cedar Anderson in Australia. They are composite plastic. But yet, still today, it's out of beekeeper's price range. It's not a bad product, but I'm not going to put $400 out for a honey box. But it doesn't mean that people aren't buying it, and it doesn't mean it doesn't work. You can look up exactly what I'm telling you about at the U.S. Patent Office, U.S. 2223561. That's US 2222 That's three twos, three five six one. You can look at the design. It was made in 1940. So the things that you're talking about are not new. Now on the Summerhawk Ranch Honey Jar Hive, Summerhawk is a chicken coop maker. They make uh, around, oh, they've been around for like 20 years. Um, the honey jar thing has been out now for like, oh, since 1750, about 1750. <laughs> so it's really nothing new. It's just over the last uh, two years, people have been putting these honey jars in the top boards. They make really cool things. Uh, like I said, the honey jar is not new. Uh, just like the flow hive, the honey jar has been around even longer. The next big thing in the honey production is comb in the jar. And it's, and it's filled with honey. And that's, that's where we went. You went from the flow hive to this honey jar. Now remember I said you have to fill the jar with honey when the bees make it. The bees will not fill the jar with honey. They just add comb with honey. Many jars you see that have honeycomb in the jars are filled with the honey after the bees are completed. The glass jar hive was made by John Milton in 19, in 1750. He wrote many pamphlets on beekeeping and was known for his glass jar beekeeping. In 1850, the perfection of the glass jar comb honey was made with John Milton working with William Wise. The two found that by adding small amounts of wax on the inside of the jar, the bees would build a comb in the jar and put honey inside the comb. And you can see these photos of this operation in the IBRA, the International Bee Research Association in Eco-Belgium. The glass bee jar requires many steps to force the bees to work in the jar. And one of them is to add wax, which is the biggest thing that people don't get when they buy this product saying it fails. Now, there are many different places you can find this. You can find them on beesource.com. You can build them yourselves. You don't have to buy them from this facility. Um, you could get the plans for the flow hive. You don't have to buy it from the Andersons out of Australia. In fact, there's other distributors now and even one in the United States making the broken slotted comb. So Summerhawk has just found a way to jump on the wagon. I will tell you, it's uh, getting closer to what one's really looking for. And what you're really looking for is what we call a Ross Round. All this is leading up to Ross Round's idea of looking and making a processed comb, easy to package, from the hive to the consumer. In the United States, you know, honey in a jar is what we like, but around the world, most people like honey in a comb. Uh, so I just want you to think about that. That's how you know you're getting a really natural product without any additives is it's in the comb still. So we went from an easy twist flow to jars we're getting and putting comb in and pouring honey in, 
And eventually we're going to get into a package, easy sell plastic container that just shoots out like a hockey puck out of the hind. So, I mean, just popping out product is what people are looking for and a button with no work. Uh, you know, maybe we can make it solar for the eco person, all natural eco hive. You know, I just want you to think about all this. It's, it's not the hive. It's the keeper. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company in Cheyenne, Wyoming, telling you, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small cottage industry and give somebody a chance to get out a good product. Hey, and help your fellow man. Because right now, we all need some help, too. So I, I really like where Michael landed with it's not the hive, it's the keeper. Um, as many of you know, I kept bees for a few years and decided that it was more, it wasn't really that much work, but it was one more thing I had to do. And I decided recently to simplify my life in a lot of ways. And one of the things I decided to simplify was not having bees. Uh, I'm kind of regretting that a little bit. Uh, now that we don't have the, kind of doing the ducks and them at the same time seemed like a good thing. And now it's like, man, I, Got so many flowers and blooms this year. It'd be kind of cool if they were here, but I'm trying to build up a population of uh, leafcutter and mason bees. Um, but one of the things I've always had a problem with, any of these methods of honey extraction um, that are supposed to make beekeeping easier, taking honey from the beehive is not the, the work of beekeeping. Um, you know, you're in your hives. If you're doing your job right as a, as a keeper, at least once a month and at minimum once every two months, and you're checking for things like, well, are the bees making queen cells? And are they going to swarm? And uh, do they have a mite infestation? Is there any kind of a problem in there? Are they happy? What, how are they drawing the comb out? What type of brood is there? Is it time to split a hive? Like, this is the work of beekeeping. The flow hive, to me, is just bullshit. I'm sorry, it is. Because what you see, this is why I think it's bullshit. It, it's fine for what it does. Okay, fine. But what you see on Facebook and Twitter and all is, oh, honey, we can get bees now. Look how easy it'll be. It's like you have no idea what you're getting. And, and, and the price is stupid as well. This jar thing, it is an old thing. A lot of beekeepers have had bees make uh, comb in jars many times. Um, usually I see keepers maybe make have them do one or two jars to a box to uh, – just to kind of have a novelty item to sell because it looks kind of cool. As Michael said, they'll put the comb in the jar and they'll fill the comb with honey, but they don't fill the jar with honey, so then you're still extracting honey to fill the jar for a complete project product. Um, if you want to, you know, honey on the in the comb, there's other ways to do it. You can just basically cut the comb off the frame and have the whole comb honey that way uh, you can do kind of the hybrid thing where you take a, a frame and it's like a top bar in a in a Lenstroth hive where you have the frame but not the plastic comb backing for them to build on and give them a bead of wax up on the top and then when you take that you can just cut that off and you have whole comb honey uh, to me that's a much better thing if that's why you're doing it not just for the novelty what I don't like about the jar method, to me, especially in a super, and this is a super with, I think, a dozen jars, three by four, I think, is how they're stacked in a row. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for having flow of air in a hive, 
And you'll see a lot of times in the summer, if your bees get too hot, they'll all be like, it looks like they're swarming, but they're not. They're just in big clumps on the, you know, on the, on the bottom of the hive or whatever, and they're trying to cool down. Um, and you don't really want, you know, your honey hot, and then it can, you know, flow away. It's not supposed to. Like, and then anything that creates pockets where you don't get airflow the way the bees want it to me uh, is, is, is not good for the hive's overall health. And often you, when you listen to a hive, you can tell the bees are fanning not just to dry out honey, but also to create airflow. And if they're going up in those jars and doing extra fanning to create the airflow they want, now you're making them work harder. And they already work really hard for the you know few weeks that they're alive a year and what have you, uh, or for the few weeks that they're alive in their life, right? Not a year. Um, I, I just to me it doesn't make sense. I think that the bees should be kept as naturally as possible. And if, if I were to ever go back into it, I would probably highly consider doing basically the top bar Lanstroff methodology where the, the bees draw their own comb within the frames. Um, there's some challenges with that method as well, but uh, my granddaughter's upset about something, I guess. Anyway, um, the, uh, the, the taking the honey, getting the honey is not the hard work of beekeeping. It's, it's not even a little bit of it. That's uh, just my thoughts on that. Next, we have uh, Darby Simpson on some tractor safety advice. Hey there, everyone. This is Farmer Darby Simpson of the Grass-Fed Life podcast calling in once again to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from a gentleman who just bought a new toy that we all get excited about. Derek up in Pennsylvania bought his first tractor, and his question is, what should he do to learn uh, you know, on how to safely operate his tractor. Uh, he has purchased a Kubota B-Series 2650 to help with some chores around the homestead. But Derek readily admits he's a city kid, and he didn't learn uh, anything about tractors. He didn't grow up in the country. So he's wanting to know what he can do, uh, you know, again, to, to safely operate his tractor and what advice I would have for a new owner. And Derek, the, the first thing I will tell you is, is – silly as this sounds, and we as Americans are terrible about doing this, is to read your owner's manual. And if you don't have an owner's manual, um, chances are you can probably find a free uh, PDF copy of your owner's manual online. And if for some reason you can't, I would actually encourage you to buy one for a couple of reasons. Number one, read through that thing. Get familiar with this piece of equipment. Uh, learn where everything is at. And, you know, take it slow. Um, start playing around with it, play around with it on some flat level ground. The biggest thing I would tell you to stay away from initially are hills. We'll circle back to that in just a minute. But again, read your manual, learn where all the controls are out, learn how to, uh, get comfortable again on some flat ground, doing some simple chores. You didn't mention if your tractor came with a small backhoe attachment or if it's got a loader. Um, one thing that I had to learn very early on, even moving around on stable flat ground was with my loader, you really have to be careful when you're backing up. Um, while it's similar to, you know, backing up a vehicle, uh, you've got this great big arm. 
sticking out and in front of you. So you have to have a whole lot more space uh, when you cut that wheel and swing because, you've again, you've got this, this big apparatus sticking out in front of you. It's easy to smack stuff. Uh, it's also really easy to smack a person. So if you've got a loader, be very careful with your uh, your hydraulic controls there, raising and lowering the loader. Uh, that's a really great way to hurt someone else uh, by you know dumping that when you, you think you're you're tilting it back or taking it down if you think you're taking it up, things of that nature. So really watch out with that. Also, if you uh, with your loader, if you're if you're moving big loads of stuff, keep that lower to the ground, um, not so low that it's going to bounce and hit the ground and and drag and damage something, but keep it lower to the ground when you're moving things around. Keeps your center of gravity uh, much lower and closer to the ground. That's a big safety tip. When it comes to getting on hills and being in Pennsylvania, you've got no shortage of hills. Um, this is where most guys get hurt. And unfortunately, even, uh, you know, seasoned, older farmers who have been on equipment for a long, long time actually lose their lives. And that is on hillsides. Um, the biggest thing I can tell you is you never uh, want to be on a hillside sideways. You always want to go straight up or straight down. Be very, very careful. Um, again, if you've got a loader, you want to keep that low. You want to make sure your brakes are in good working condition. You want to make sure you're in the, the proper gear, a low gear. Um, that's the biggest thing I can tell you. And even if it's a small hill, if if you go off of a, you know, just like off of a county road, and I've had this happen here where I've gone off at a little bit of an angle instead of going straight off of the county road where it just drops down two or three feet um, and as a gradual drop into my hay field. Uh, I've, I've had some moments, uh, some, some, oh, sugar, honey, iced tea moments, you know, on, on the tractor there. Uh, one thing I have not done that I do need to do and something I would encourage you to look into is, uh, getting fluid put into your tires that will give you a lot more counterbalance weight in the back end of your tractor. Um, that this is particularly important if, again, you've got a loader and you're moving stuff around. Uh, something I'm looking into is uh, they actually will now put beet juice uh, into your tires instead of using the uh, the chemical additive that goes in there that's got the antifreeze in it so it won't eat the rims. It's more expensive, but it won't, uh, won't damage the tractor, won't harm the tractor. Um, and again, you get that nice uh, counterbalance. If you, for some reason, are moving super heavy loads, you could always look at getting some kind of a counterweight for the rear of the tractor. You can get, you know, different attachments. I've got a greater box that's six foot wide for my tractor. A lot of times, even if I'm, you know, doing a lot of loader work or something, I'll put that on, even though I may not need it, just so I've got a, a counterweight on the back end to uh, keep me planted firmly on the ground. That's that's really the biggest danger, uh, hitting someone else with the loader, um, running into something, or, or tipping it on a hillside. So get a copy of your owner's manual, read through it, learn how to maintain your tractor too. Uh, that's, a, that's a really big deal. They're not terribly difficult to work on. A Napa, honestly, is going to be able to get most of the filters that you're going to need if you don't have a Kubota dealer close by. Um, but uh, definitely a good investment there. So that's that's really what I got for you, Derek. Congratulations on your purchase. I hope you're able to use your new little tractor for all kinds of fun things around the homestead. Uh, it seems like there's never uh, a day where I can't find a new use for my tractor. I, I don't know how some guys get along without them. Um, I, I 
I joked with Greg Judy one time when we were speaking together at a conference that I just I don't know how he gets along without a tractor and uh he he doesn't know why I need one, but I, I tell you, I just I, I'd, I'd lay down and cry without it. It's one of those things that I, I genuinely don't know how I ever uh, got as much done as I did without my tractor. We literally use it all the time for all kinds of things. I'm always buying new attachments for it, and uh, it's just a great tool here on our farm. So anyway, Derek, thanks for sending in the question. Uh, for the rest of you who are interested in all things farming related, check out the Grass Fed Life podcast. We have a new episode that comes out every Monday. You can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. We've also got a new Facebook page that we have started recently. There's a lot of great information out there. There are a couple of free one-hour mini courses out on the Facebook page. Uh, there's a one-hour course on pastured poultry where I demonstrate how you can make $10,000 profit on a batch of broilers in nine weeks on pasture. One acre, 10 grand, nine weeks. You didn't mishear that. Uh, there's also another uh, free one-hour mini course out there my good friend Diego Footer did on starting a farm business that deals with things like LLCs and legal stuff, corporate structures, accounting, insurance, all that fun stuff. So feel free to go check those out. Again, check out the podcast. You can also check us out at grassfedlife.co. The podcast is out there. We've got a, a lot of blog articles out there. And new out on grassfedlife.co is a resource page. There are links to all of the specific equipment that I use on my farm. These are the actual pieces of equipment we use every day. A lot of stuff out there for poultry as well as a few other things. So check that out. If you're interested in going deeper, check out the online course at farmbusinessessentials.com. 23 modules and growing, about 25, 26 hours of content. You can view about an hour of that for free if you'd like to do so. If you're interested in making money with regenerative farming, check that out. I promise you won't be disappointed. As always, everyone, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. Have a wonderful weekend and take care. So my additions here would just be kind of in general, not just with tractors, but with anything that can maim, harm, kill, destroy. Um, growing up, I had a woodshop teacher that I spent a lot of time with. I did my two years that they let me take shop class in high school, and then I did two years as a shop apprentice where I helped other students and uh, generally screwed off and talked about guns with that shop teacher, Mr. Fox. And an old Ukrainian grandfather who spent a lot of his life as a coal miner, uh, and saw a lot of people have things like fingers blown off with blasting caps and things like that, uh, and spent the, uh, the, majority, the, the majority of his life after coal mining as a carpenter. Uh, well, you know, he saws and nail guns and yeah, lots of blood, guts, and gore can happen with that too. And both of them drove into my head the basic concept that machines have no respect whatsoever for flesh and bone, and they will cut, grind, crush, destroy flesh and bone the same as they will wood or metal. And that any time that you're working with anything capable of doing that, you have to give it a tremendous amount of respect, and uh, you have to treat it like it wants to kill you, which doesn't mean be afraid of it, but it, but it does mean understand things like your plane of hazard, where, where, where can you be injured if you are where, right? So if you're using, let's say, a, a, a bandsaw, a drop-down bandsaw, that blade is attached to a hinge. 
And to be cut by the blade, you have to be somewhere that blade is capable of going, so don't be there. There are other things that can happen, like throwing the band off or something like that, but generally if you're using it properly, that won't be a problem. I know that's not a tractor, but it is the same type of situation and thinking. And when you're new on a tractor, like when I was in construction, we had very experienced operators, and there would be times I would be down in a hole and an excavator operator would be using a bucket right next to me uh, to check things out and stuff like that, and... I was, because of the experience level, I was okay with that. I even rode a bucket down into a, a ditch one time. That was probably not a good idea, but it was something that in, at the time we felt needed to be done. Um, you don't do shit like that with new operators. There should be no one in, if you're using, let's say, a, a backhoe attachment to a tractor, as far as that thing can reach... There should be no one in that space while that person's using that piece of equipment. That's a general good piece of advice anyway, but the reason I bring it up with, you know, with highly experienced operators, there are times when it is done, and, but even then it's still like the exception rather than the rule. If I'm running a chainsaw, for instance, and some of you guys have been here to workshops where I've had to use a chainsaw, my rule is if I can reach out with my arm and touch you with the, with the bar of that chainsaw, you're too close. I have to worry about myself using that saw. I don't want to have to worry about you. If people have been here and tried, tried to pick a log up and hold it for me while I cut it, really? No, that's not. No, that's not. That's not happening. That's that. That's that's just not. And I'm talking about a log that you'd be cutting in half to make two pieces of firewood out of. They're going to hold one end of it while I cut it with a chainsaw. No, 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 no. We're not going to be doing that. We're just not going to be doing that. And so that, that's kind of my addition there. Always remember that anything that can crush you, cut you, uh, crush you, or, or beat you uh, that's a machine has no respect whatsoever for the fact that you're flesh and bone versus wood, metal, or dirt, or rock. Uh, next up, we have a question here uh, for former law enforcement officer Dan Omen on crime rates in regard to areas where cannabis has been legalized. Hello, TSP. This is Dan Oman answering your law enforcement questions. Today I have a question from Stallion. Stallion wants to know, have crime rates gone down in Colorado or other drug-tolerant states? Details. Now that drugs are legal there, have crime rates dropped and the prison populations declined? I have not seen this discussed anywhere, but is there some upside to legalization that is starting to show up? Or is it too early yet to see these trends? Just an important correction to start things off. It's not that all drugs have been legalized, it's that marijuana has been legalized. And when I saw this question come in, I had two things come to mind. One, Stephen Harris might be really interested in this question because Jack's always recommending him that he checks out one of these states for relocation purposes. And two, I thought this will be pretty easy to look at and kind of interesting because all I need to do is go to the FBI's Uniform Crime Report Statistics page that they have, and I'll just be able to look up the data and do an analysis. But that was not the case. The FBI has not updated the UCR information since 2014, so it doesn't really give us a very good look at crime rate changes in Colorado or Washington since the legalization has occurred. Given that, I had to turn to the media and look for news articles about different crime rates, and the first thing I found was a report from 2014 from naturalsociety.com, and they reported that crime rates in Colorado had dropped 14.6%. Then MSNBC had an article that said, according to data from the Denver Police Department, violent crimes, which is going to be homicide, rape, 
robbery, those types of crimes, they fell by 6.9% in the first quarter of 2014 compared to where they were in 2013. And also property crime, which is going to be burglary, theft, those types of crimes, dropped by 11%. So if we look at just these two articles, right off the bat, we're seeing this really nice reduction in crime since the legalization of marijuana. Then we had this brilliant report that I saw come out from the Washington Post in 2016, they were really, really excited to report that marijuana arrests are way down in Colorado. Wow. So marijuana is legal, and they're making a story about how marijuana arrests are way down. That's compelling. That article did not make any conclusions about overall crime rates. It just looked at a marijuana address, but then concluded saying it's too soon to tell for overall crime. Then I found an article from the Huffington Post that was published in 2017, which claimed that crime rates in Colorado have actually increased. And these previous studies that these other articles were using... They were cherry-picking which crimes to include in the crime rate analysis, so it was not an accurate reflection of what was actually going on. The Huffington Post went on to point out that those previous studies were also funded by the pro-marijuana lobby. The article also went on to discuss how in Denver alone, crime increased 6.7% since legalization, and drug offenses, obviously non-marijuana-related drug offenses, went up 20% since 2013. An article from the Denver Post also confirms what the Huffington Post was saying in their article in that Colorado crime rates have increased. The crime rates in Colorado increased in 2016 11 times over the 0.3% average increase that we saw in other metro areas of the country. Police departments are reporting that there has been a dramatic transient population increase with the legalization of marijuana, which has contributed to a flood of property crimes. Again, those are burglaries, thefts. So where is the truth in all this? I'm not really sure, but there are really a lot of other factors to consider that, uh, that affect crime rates other than just perhaps the legalization of marijuana. So other things that affect crime rates are weather. So if we have a really, really hot summer that goes on for a long time in a particular year, then we see a spike in crimes. We also see this when we experience economic recessions, and other factors can include population density. The more dense a certain population is, generally we have a higher crime per capita, and age demographics play a factor here as well. So there are other things to look at that could be impacting the crime rate. So we don't even know really that there's necessarily a nexus between the legalization and these either increases or decreases in crime. If we saw dramatic changes in the crime rates, we'd be able to come to a better conclusion about the marijuana legalization on overall crime rates. But really, the margins of the change being reported in these articles, they aren't really that compelling to me. I think it may indeed just be a little bit too soon to really know what the real effects are, if any. If you're in law enforcement in one of these states where marijuana has been legalized, I'd love to hear from you guys. Leave a comment in today's show notes and uh, let me know what you think. Is it making an impact in your police department or sheriff's office? What have you seen? What are your personal anecdotal observations uh, since delegalization has occurred? Thanks for sending that one in, Stallion. That was kind of interesting to look at. And if you guys have any interest in getting started with sheep, raising grass-fed lambs on your homestead, I just came out with a short ebook. It's about 20 pages and it has lots of pictures in it, so it might actually only be 15 pages of actual reading. 
It's called The Six Things That You Need to Get Started with Sheep. I think it's a really good guide in getting started in the materials that you need to get for your homestead. It has product recommendations in it and links to different products that have worked well for me. So it takes that guesswork out and it's going to give you the tools you need to get started. I'm going to send Jack a link to where you can download a free copy of the ebook, and also I'll send in the links for the various articles I found related to the marijuana legalization in Colorado. Well, one of the places that they legalized things a long time ago is Amsterdam, and we have uh, uh, an interview with a couple uh, Dutch police officers via our British correspondent, Harry Enfeld. Uh, to tell us a little bit more about this concept. Hello there, it's me, Captain Stefan van der Hasgracht of the Amsterdam Police again. He's my partner, and also I'm very happy to say my lover, Ronald. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like in any big city, we are having ourselves crime. Burglary was a very big problem here, but we are proud of the way we tackled it, because since we legalized burglary, there is no longer a problem. The only real problem of social disorder that remains here is, I'm very sorry to say, the English boys who are drinking too much and fighting always with themselves. Ouch! Well, we take a very strict approach with these um, people and are arresting them and taking them to the police station where they are put in the custody of the WPCs. That is, the women prostitute constables. <laughs> and they are giving them some excellent hardcore sex and soft drugs. After which they become quite pleasant. So we are also giving them some tickets for IX matches. <laughs> Evening all. So I, uh, I played that to make a point. By the way, Harry Enfield is a British uh, comedian with his own show. I think it's an old show from like the 70s or the 80s. Uh, Benny, Benny Hill, of course, was uh, the one that ended up over here in Monty Python that uh, a lot of young folks watched in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but there's a whole litany of unique British comedies out there. Harry Enfield's one. Another one is Trigger Happy TV. If you want to have a laugh today, go to YouTube and put in Trigger Happy TV Snail. Snail, and you will see something. Interesting. Anyway, um, my actual point with that little bit of uh, production value add there is that, of course, the criminal rates for use of cannabis would go down if you legalize cannabis. Uh, and that was kind of the point that Dan was making. The overall, I don't really know, is a good answer. Um, of course, I am a huge advocate for legalization. In fact, I don't even want legalization. I would prefer decriminalization uh, because... The way I look at it, it's a plant, and we don't have the, the word tomato does not appear in the criminal code, so there's no reason for the word marijuana or cannabis, you know, to appear in the criminal. It just needs to be not a thing. Um, now, there's other piece here though, like you know, squatters and transients and crime. This is what happens when you have irrational laws uh, and combine them with federalism. I'm sorry, republicanism. So the individual states are beginning to decide whether or not they want to legalize uh, cannabis now and how they want to do it. And, you know, one of the places that's legalized it in one of the more friendly ways, if you want to put it that way, would be Colorado. In other words, in Pennsylvania, it's now technically legal, but you have to get um, a... You have to get a medical marijuana card in Pennsylvania. You have to register with the state. You have to have a prescription. And they're now saying that you give up your right to own a gun in the state of Pennsylvania if you are a medical marijuana card holder, which is just ridiculous. And so that's an example of, like, you wouldn't go to Pennsylvania to, to get some marijuana, right? You just wouldn't do it. Um, 
you you wouldn't. It doesn't make any sense, right? Like if you're like in uh, New Jersey, you wouldn't drive over there to get some from the state store, right? I mean, Pennsylvania still has some of the weirdest liquor laws, let alone what they're going to do with with cannabis. Um, where in Colorado, you can just cruise on into a, a store that sells recreational uh, cannabis and buy whatever you want, and you know, so you would get more of a transient group of people going into there. And what you would say is, like, do does selling alcohol cause crime? Well, no, no it doesn't. I mean, alcohol. there are alcohol-related crimes, of course, but, you know, it's not like the world ended when Prohibition was repealed or anything. But you have certain places where maybe you can't buy alcohol. Uh, it's difficult. States still with a lot of dry counties and things like that. And then they group all of the alcohol stores in one place, And then it becomes kind of a seedy part of town. Well, duh. Duh. But if you go to a state where they just let you buy whatever you want wherever you go, uh, you don't see that. You don't see that grouping of liquor stores on the bad side of town. There's nice, beautiful, well-lit liquor stores that you can go to and, and buy gourmet food while you're buying your bottle of Gentleman Jack. And, and, and that's kind of what's going on right now. Right now we have, not only do we have... Um, only certain states where it's not only legalized, but legalized and it's friendly for people to buy for recreational use. And then even in those places, they kind of push all of the dispensaries into a small area. And that creates this focus where if it was just not criminal to have a plant, you wouldn't have tons of dispensaries. What you'd have mostly is people growing it in their own house for their own use because it's cheaper. I mean, you can set up a little grow room for not much money, get a couple clones, and you're good for the rest of your life. And, 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 and if it wasn't illegal, if it wasn't criminal to do that, then that's mainly what would go on. And you won't see that come around anytime soon because now there's money in it. You know, and I know there's some places where you can have up to six plants or whatever, blah, 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 blah. Um, and there's local ordinances that supersede this and all, but the the big medical or the big marijuana companies now do not want this. So they've created a whole new class of criminals within the world of cannabis in these states that have supposedly made it legal. Sure, if you have an ounce or less on you, you're okay, but. The criminal code actually in a lot of these places where they've now made it legal, it's now a more severe penalty if you're over that amount than it was before. It's um, it's a bait and switch, and it's 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 sad. The real discussion we should be having is why is a plant illegal? It's a plant. If if tomatoes are legal and peppers are legal and and whatever other plant you can come up with is legal, so should so should cannabis be legal. My thoughts. Anyway, let's take another one. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here about developing a fish pond in an outer zone, a zone three. And there's a worry about it freezing to the bottom. It's on flat land, 160 acres. And uh, they want to kind of mimic the prairie pothole region, apparently, and um, hold as much water as possible. They have cows, goats pigs, chickens, geese and ducks at their disposal as tools. Well, all of those might work if you don't get to seal a dam. You could use cows or pigs um, or even geese and ducks to help seal it uh, by gleeing the bottom of the dam and feeding, penning the animals into the hole until they gleed it with their manure and then um, 
fencing them out when we get to the whole water. But you haven't got that problem at the moment. You want to get a a, uh, a pond out there, and you don't want it to freeze. So the the easiest way to go about this is to set in some really big, deep spots, or or not necessarily big, but deep, deeper holes that um, allow for a certain amount of water to um, be um, free from freezing down deep. So that's the standard uh, system. If you can't do that, you could actually use a glass house hanging over the water or floating on the water to stop a section freezing. And if you really have extremely cold conditions, you can actually float down um, um, a plastic skirt so you get a column of warm water inside a plastic skirt below a floating uh, glass house. This has been done in Scandinavia. And you get a column of warm water, warm water below the glass house, and it definitely won't freeze. But you probably can just get away with a deep spot. Just find out what depth water does freeze to and make sure you've got uh, a reasonable size hole in each of your dams that goes down below that depth. And the fish will kettle up down there. They'll, uh, they won't be very active, but they'll kettle up and survive down in the deep water that doesn't freeze. There you go. couple additional thoughts there. Number one, if you have enough depth, it shouldn't be an issue. Even with Zone 3, I, I don't think you'll see uh, your pond freeze solid if you have a depth of, let's say, 10 feet is your deepest spot in the pond. Uh, one of the things to can be concerned with, though, with long iced over winters is lack of oxygen. Running aeration to the pond will probably keep at least a column open where it will have an opening and not freeze. Uh, and you'll have like an opening and then you'll also have oxygen. So that might be something to consider. Um, not zone three, but where I lived in Pennsylvania was zone five. We had a lot of slush dams and things like that. Uh, depths in the range of 8 to 12 feet were pretty common. Some of them were deeper. Um, in really cold winters, sometimes they would be frozen for months at a time, and there was really no loss to the fish life in them. Uh, so if you're talking about larger ponds, I, I don't see it as being that big of a concern. This has a lot to do with the way that water is different than any other substance on the planet, and that is a good thing. Um, most substances become more dense as they become colder, and water does the same right down to just above freezing where the whole thing reverses, and this causes the water, once it hits a certain temperature of cold, to stop sinking and actually rise to the surface. Hence, water freezes from the top down, not the bottom up. If this were not the case, there would be no life on the planet because the Earth would be, have become a long time ago a giant snowball. It would have been snowball Earth uh, if, if things froze from the bottom up uh, long ago, and it probably would have never completely thawed out ever. Uh, and what this means is that because of that, ice actually traps some of the warmth of the water below the surface of the ice. And once ice gets to a certain thickness, its growth begins to slow. I, I remember the coldest I ever saw it when ice fishing, we had one foot of depth on the ice. So, And I have seen people fishing with maybe 18 inches of depth. I've not seen ice get much thicker than that in freshwater environments. It probably can, but I have not seen it. I, I don't think you'd have a 10-foot pond freezing solid. Again, my concern is oxygen for the fish. However, this in and of itself has some mitigating circumstances, and, and that is that 
the fish are using very little energy and very little oxygen and not eating much at all uh, when it gets that cold. They, they, they really slow down, almost lizard-like. Uh, not completely and not all species, but they definitely are at a slower rate than otherwise, than they would be in the middle of summer. So think about some oxygen uh, to the, the pond. Uh, that'll probably actually keep a hole open for you, and that'll solve all of your issues. And try to get as much depth as you can. Uh, the depth also increases the volume of water, which is good for many things. But it's like when you think of once the pond freezes over, if it does freeze solid across the top, you have a battery of oxygen in there. The more water volume, the more oxygen. So anyway, now we have one on, uh, well, an infestation of ladybugs for Gary Collins because it's in an RV. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of thesimplelifenow.com. That's right, finally got this thing going. The website is kinda, it's up, it runs, it runs like it used to, but you know, there's some primal power method stuff still mixed in and we're working through it. It'll take a while to get the whole theme and everything put together. You guys who run your own business know how painful websites can be. I know Jack does. But yes, it's live. The book, the new book, The Simple Life, Guide to RV Living is on sale. And remember, I'm in the MSB uh, place, so MSB members, I'm a vendor in there, so you guys can get your discount. And the supplement line's still there. Just going to have new labels on it. I'm working through that as well. All still available. The book is ready for hard copy and digital on my site. Uh, the hard copy is still not available on Amazon. It'll get there. But uh, getting there, guys, exciting. So... With that, uh, Joel just bought a 26-foot RV, or I mean travel trailer, and uh, has a bug problem. Uh, he's in northeast Washington. It doesn't surprise me. We had a pretty heavy bug year last summer. It was heavy. A lot of mosquitoes, ladybugs, and pine beetles. The locals call them stink bugs. Where I grew up, stink bugs were black bugs that stuck their butt up and stunk. Uh, these are uh, beetles that you step on them and they stink and they're, they are, they're a form of pine beetle. So yeah, it's, uh, a way to naturally eradicate them. The first thing I would do is I would figure out where they're getting in. It, were they there already nested and had some more or are they sneaking in and, and the bugs, you know, if you live out in the sticks, bugs just love to get in houses, sheds, dog house. They just love it. They will find a way, and if there's a crevice, they'll tell all their buddies, they'll have a party, and they'll smack you in the face. I deal with it. Almost fell off a couple ladders, bugs last year, buzzing the tower and whacking right into me. So I've tried everything. Uh, the best way is just to seal the thing up. Naturally, I vacuum them up, to be honest with you. That's the best thing I've found. I have a little... Uh, Milwaukee powered, uh, it works off portable, you know, your tool batteries, your, your, uh, powered electric tools. And I just, I just vacuum up. I take that thing and I can pick it up, take it anywhere, get on a ladder if they're in the ceiling and stuff. And then I just throw it outside. I've tried some natural stuff inside like the orange citrus, but the orange citrus is oil based. So it can get really messy when you spray that stuff around. Um, you know, some things that can work is like vinegar, um, rubbing alcohol mixed with it. Sometimes it kills them, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, there's no way to eradicate them that I've found. I've tried 
with asking my neighbors, everyone. Uh, I grew up with ladybugs where I grew up. It's just the way they are. So I would go around, get a can of spray foam, get the window. You get two cans, get the window version, which doesn't expand as much. And then there's the big crack expanding one for big cracks. That's what I would do. Get underneath that travel trailer. Travel trailers and RVs, especially uh, fifth wheels. Fifth wheels are notorious for having all kinds of gaps and holes in the bottom of them. Most of the people here at the RV park I'm at right now, recording this in my travel trailer, actually have been infested with field mice. I have it. Mine is sealed tight. Mine's made for more uh, severe weather, and it is sealed. I've had zero problems. No bugs. No, no nothing. But I would guess that there's probably a hole in there or gaps in your doors. Maybe the rubber seal's gone bad. Um, screen doors, to be honest with you, those things never seal quite right. So if you got your screen door open, bugs are, some bugs are going to get in, especially if your lights are on and all that. They're just attracted to that. So I would get under there and get some silicone. Get some silicone to hit some, some gaps that you see under there. And just look around. See what you can find. That is the the best way to deal with bugs in a travel trailer RV. And you can also use, they make miniature bug zappers now. Those are the things that go, bleh, you know, bug gets in there, it makes that loud noise. Well, the new ones are not loud. They're, they're, they're pretty small. I use those in my house, actually. Used them last year during the bug season because they were getting all over the place as I was going in and out and working on stuff. But I hope that helps. Again, Simple Life Now. Dot com, the simple life now.com. I gotta make myself say that I've been saying primal power method for so long. Go get the books. Make sure to review them on Amazon for me. You know, you guys know I do all this on my own. I publish them on my own. I write them on my own. You know, I do all this stuff on my own. So those reviews are a huge help. Unless, or, you know, you, you hate me and you think I stink. Yeah, maybe not. And <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not leave the review. But I hope that helps, and congratulations, Joel. So, a couple things. Number one, there is a lady beetle in the United States that came in quite a while ago that is not the lady beetle that we're most happy to see in our gardens. It's a Chinese lady beetle, also known as the harlequin ladybird. They actually call lady beetles or ladybugs ladybirds. And uh, you can tell them from the common ladybug that we like to see around because they the biggest difference is they have kind of really big white cheeks, I guess you would think of it. If you uh, put in you Google Chinese lady beetle versus common ladybug, you will be able to find uh, a comparison and, and, and determine the difference of them. Uh, I had always been told that these Chinese lady beetles were bad, 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 bad things compared to the good, good, good ladybugs that we want around. The truth is these Chinese lady beetles are pretty much very similar to our native ladybirds, and they also eat aphids and do all the other good stuff in the garden. The two things that it's said that they cause to happen, though, is one, they can leave a residue behind that's unpleasantly in smell, and the other is that they uh, will invade homes where they say the common ladybug does not invade homes. The first one is true, to a degree. It's not as bad as some people make it out to be. And the second one is bullshit. They may be more likely to invade your home, but I can tell you that our home in Arkansas every spring was full of ladybugs, and they were the common variety ladybug, not the Chinese one. So we could have either one there. Um, in either event, I agree with Gary. Your best 
your best uh, bet is prevention and sealing everything up so they can't get in and other bugs and creatures and crevices and stuff can't get in is good and it also will help you with keeping your, your RV either warm or cool depending on the time of the year and whether you're running heat or air conditioning so it's a win-win-win all around. On the other side of this, though, since ladybugs are generally harmless critters and they really don't want to be in your house uh, when you see them. So they're, they're, they're hiding in there in, in the winter when it's cold. And then when it's spring, the reason you see them is they all come out and go, I want out of here. And they came in one way and tried to go out the other, and now they're stuck. So where the, 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 the solution to keep them out is to seal everything up, the best thing to do when they show up is realize they're not trying to get in anymore. Open, if you can, open everything. Open everything and turn a big giant fan on. And you will find that most of them will then find their way out because you usually see them where? They're all clustered in the window. Why? They want out. They want to go out there and do good things. So if you do have a lady beetle infestation, um, Gather them up and free them. Uh, you want them around. They are a good thing. They are not the cockroaches of the world. They are the ladybugs of the world, and we need them. Uh, they destroy evil vermin. In fact, today I'm expecting to arrive in the mail uh, about 4,500 of them that I've paid money for to have come to my property. So that tells you how I think of them. Uh, next up, I've got a question for Chef Keith Snow on cooking school for homeschooler and cookware as well. We have two questions combined, and one from the chef. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. I want to answer a couple of questions today. Uh, first one comes from Phil, and he's got a 12-year-old son who's taken an interest in cooking and baking, and he's wondering about the best um, classes or online education that's possible. Now, um, I'll say this. There is only a couple of high-quality online um, schools that teach you know, basic culinary education without the sort of cooking show um, distractions. So that said, I would um, encourage you to check out a site called Ruby, and it's R-O-U-X-B-E, ruby.com. It's a Canadian company, uh, but they have, you know, quite a bit of funding and a lot of content. I think the cost is probably about $299. I could be wrong. Um, but Ruby does teach <clears throat> basic um, cooking, knife skills, sauce making, um, basic baking. So they have a lot of content and they have it set up in a way that it feels uh, a lot like a school because you, you know, progress through the course and there's tests and all, all kinds of stuff. So as far as online education, there's not a ton of it. But um, Ruby does, I would say, the best job of all. Now, of course, I've got a, a course, but mine is, you know, strictly about, um, you know, food storage and, you know, survival cooking. So that's probably not going to be something that um, your son is interested in. However, um, since you called in the question, I'm happy to give you a free membership to Food Storage Feast because there's dozens and dozens of videos there that um, your son can certainly learn from, and I'm happy to give that to you. Just email me, Keith, at harvesteating.com. But as far as um, the the education goes, I would recommend Ruby, and that should give him a pretty good in-depth way to, to move along. And being a homeschool you know, parent myself, all three of our kids have been homeschooled except for two years, but um, the the way Ruby works, it's more like something that you can track and, and um, it feels a lot more like a school. 
So that's what I would suggest there. Now, moving on to the second part of the question, Rob from Michigan is wondering on my thoughts about Le Creuset cookware. Now, for those of you that don't know, this is a French brand, very old French brand, and what they have is enameled cast iron. Now, this is good stuff, and, you know, Rob is, is saying that they're they're pretty expensive, and this is the case with any good cookware is going to be quite expensive. Um, so, yeah, that is definitely, <laughs> you're not going to get around that, but you can go, and I've been to some of these places. There's outlet malls. You know, they're all over the southeast and probably other places in the country, too, and Le Creuset oftentimes will have a, a discount store in there, and you can buy, you know, sets that, or last year's color, you know, pumpkin orange and wacky lime green, whatever it might be. They have a lot of different colors, and you can get very good deals on it. So it is worth picking up. Now, this is my thought on Le Creuset, and I have a lot of it. And, um, you know, fortunately for me, I probably only purchased 5% of it. Most of it was donated, or, or not donated, but given to me for filming reasons and that sort of thing. Um but just the other day, I opened up a box in the garage, and lo and behold, there were three um, very um, large um, Le Creuset uh, pieces. And this one is extremely big, and it actually it happens to be a good one for frying in. But so I do like them; they cook well, they heat up fast. Um, they're relatively easy to clean. My my wife does enjoy the fact that that enameled surface in there. It does get stuck on things. Don't don't um you know have any illusions that it's non-stick by any means. Things will stick to it. But it does clean up rather fast. Um now they're they're those are good. Le Creuset, you can't go wrong with them. My favorite brand however is Staub, S T A U B. It's also a French brand. It's made in the northeast corner of France. It's really a German company that's just kind of over the border, and it's heavier cookware. My wife hates it because of that. It's, you know, you pick up, even when there's nothing in it, it is very heavy. But what I like about it as a cook is when you put the lid of a Staub pot on, you will, and it's on properly, you will get zero evaporation. So if you're doing a long, slow braise or a stew, you can have complete confidence that all the moisture is going to stay in that pot and drip back down on the food. Now, Le Creuset, for some reason, their lids, at least the ones that I have, um, they don't seem to seal the moisture in as well. Now, this doesn't mean that they're bad. Um, you can always take tin foil and put it over the top of um, the pot and then put the, the cover on it for longer, longer goes. So I hope I answered your question. It is good stuff. Uh, also, there's a, if you go to my website, there's, uh, or you just go to harvesteating.com slash ceramic. A good friend of mine in New Jersey makes amazing uh, ceramic cookware. It's solid ceramic, too. It's not any coating. And uh, it's called Extrema. Um, that's really good stuff, too. So there's a ton of choices out there, Rob. Uh, I hope you can build your collection and uh, enjoy cooking. So that's it, folks. I appreciate it. And thanks for supporting the Survival Podcast and certainly what I do. Everybody have a great weekend. Take care. All right, guys, so in my usual spot as anchor for this show, I have actually two because the first one's relatively short, and I figured I could cover two today and give you some more variety. So the first one is an aquaponics, or it could be just a wicking bed question if you were doing any kind of a flow-through wicking bed scenario, whether it was actually aquaponics or not. Um, and it is a problem I have had before. Here's the question from John. 
The inlet tube to my wicking bed is overflowing onto the surface of the bed. It appears that the tube is clogged with roots. Do you have any solution to fix this besides digging up the inlet and cleaning things out? Details. I have a one-half-inch pipe plumbing water into a one-and-a-quarter-inch pipe that goes down into the rock of the bed. I'm guessing I didn't wrap the weed blocker material snugly enough around the quarter-inch pipe. The roots have gotten in there, restricting flow. I spun the pipe to cut the roots off, but the water still overflows into the surface. I didn't think that would work anyway. For now, I just turn the valve off and turn it on a few times a day to saturate the soil. I just dig up the pipe and repair things, but I have a tomato and peas, flowers on my plants. I've never been able to grow a single tomato at this elevation of 9,000 feet and would like to avoid destroying these plants if possible, but if I have to, so be it. Have you run into this sort of thing before? Thanks, John in Blackhawk, Colorado. All right, so here we go on this one. Yes, I have. Let's start off with how to make sure it doesn't happen again. So spinning the pipe does cut the roots, and that does work, but if not if you wait until this happens. So what I do now is usually once a day or at least once every other day and at a bare minimum once every three days, I go check all of the flow to my bed. So, so I go out there and I make sure that the pipe, because you're running a very slow speed with a flow through wicking bed. So what we have is water coming in and going out and maintaining a constant level in your wicking bed. And that does a lot of really great things for the plants, the growth, the nutrient, the energy, the oxygen, and the fish system. The whole thing works wonderfully together. And in that pipe, so you have a pipe that goes all the way to the bottom down into the rocks that lets the water flow in there. It's like a media excluder, but for water to get in instead of for a belt siphon in a, uh, another type of system. And roots will find their way down into the rocks. That's going to happen. And they will especially follow the little cracks around down into the pipe, and they can get into that pipe. So what I do is I spin that pipe every single time I put my hand on it because it takes two seconds to do. So that means the roots never get a chance because they get cut off. So what's happened for John, and I have had this happen to me, they got in there and they created a, a plug And they probably come away, you probably could shine a light down and look down. And a one-and-a-quarter inch downpipe is a good-sized pipe. I, I have standardized on two-inch. Unfortunately, I have some that are smaller than that. Uh, and I'm not pleased that I made that bad decision. Uh, and I may have to do some of my own digging up next season. We'll, we'll see uh, because of using a smaller downpipe. But one-and-a-quarter is a pretty good-sized pipe. One inch to two inches is in that range is good for your sleeve pipe. And then your half-inch delivery is fine. Um, I, I'm very hesitant to tell you this because just because it worked for me doesn't mean it'll work for you. But generally speaking, once that pipe's been in there a while and everything's settled and compacted in, you can usually, if you try this and it doesn't work, do not blame me. Remove, like pull out your delivery pipe and grab that sleeve pipe, spin it a few times, make sure it's easily spinning back and forth, lift it straight up, clean it out, stick it right back in the hole. I cannot promise you that one of the rocks down in the rock bed won't fall in the hole and you won't be able to get it back down. I can't promise you that won't happen, but if you try everything else and you are dead set on fixing it, I did it and it worked. I was like, oh, I don't know, and I pulled it up, and I looked, and it was a huge plug. I took a stick, and I pushed it out. And it was you know, like it came halfway up the pipe, even though it had gotten in down at the bottom. And uh, I shoved it right back in. It went all the way down, 
hooked it back up, turned it back on, and it's been working fine ever since. So it is possible that that will work. Here's maybe a better idea. Get a long drill bit, like a flex bit or something like that. And you, they do make drill bits over two feet long, okay? And that's the kind I'm talking about. Attach it to your drill. Get up on some sort of a stool or step ladder. Be careful not to fall and break your ass. Put it all the way, force it all the way to the bottom without spinning it. Get it down in there till it touches the bottom. And pick it up just about an inch so you don't drill a hole in the bottom of the bed itself. And use the variable speed and turn the drill very, very slowly while holding the sleeve. Give it a couple spins. Let it spin around you know, five, ten times and pull straight up. It may very well wrap the roots around the drill bit and allow you to pull it out like a swab out of a rifle barrel. Um, a paddle bit, if you can find a long enough one, might work even better than a regular bit, but I'm thinking a regular style drill bit, a flex bit, because of the grooves in the bit itself, should cause, because Lord knows anything like that that gets near a drill bit when you're drilling, when you're drilling plastic or something like that, the shavings always wrap up around the bit. So that would be my best bet. The other thing that might work is if you have, a, you know, I talked about um, a gun barrel. If you have a jag, you know, a, a, a snagging jag for pulling uh, uh, patches out of a gun barrel, simply putting that down in there and kind of spinning it by hand uh, may wrap up around there and, and get out for you. Or even like a shotgun brush, right? If you took, and you might even use the drill bit with this, Uh, if you, you get like a 410 or a 45 uh, caliber uh, brass brush, if you can work it down into the roots and get it wrapped up around there, uh, maybe go ahead and chuck that in your drill bit and uh, your drill. And again, very, very slow spin and get it to kind of wrap that stuff up. You might be able to pull it out. Uh, but again, I'm going to say that I have pulled excluder tubes out and stuck them back in. I've done it twice. It worked both times. It doesn't mean it will always work for everyone. It does not mean it would always work for me. It's a, it's a risk. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing right now. Fill it up once a day. You know, I mean, you can put it on a, you can put a solenoid on it, you know, and, and, and have it run for 10 seconds, you know, I don't know, every, uh, you know, three times a day or something like that if you, if you, if you had to. But, uh, the other thing you can try, is if you get it cleaned out and it's still having some problems backing up, maybe it's not even in the tube. Maybe there's some, uh, uh, maybe it's slowing down the speed of the water through the rocks. Maybe you've got roots down in there. One of the things that can help with that is if, as long as you did like a four inch pipe as a media excluder for your overflow pipe, you could reach down in there and pull your stand up pipe out, cut some, cut some, cut some length off it and lower the water table a little bit. That's another thing that might work. If you did it with the buried pipe method, which was the old method I used to use and converted from this year, it could be that you don't have a problem with your downpipe at all. That thing can get clogged up, and that's a problem, and that's a pain in the butt, and then your only solution is going to be to dig it up. But remember, this is a deep bed. So even if it's not wicking properly, you can just water it until you get through this growing season. So if you take the option of trying to get the stuff out and it doesn't work, and you take the option of pulling the pipe out, and that doesn't work, just water your bed until you get through the season like normal, and it'll be fine. Uh, and then the next one 
is from Andrew. And Andrew says, does it really matter that much if I quit my job now in order to concentrate on building my business when I am a very low-wage earner? Uh, I've listened to probably 700 episodes now. I've heard you say time and time again, follow your passion, start your own business, but I don't. But don't quit your job until you're making enough money at your side hustle to pay all your bills. My salary is only 15 grand a year and 11 bucks an hour, and I'm married with two kids. My wife works her ass off too, and as I look around at all the different ways to make money, like Rover.com, MovingHelper.com, Uber Eats, gig economy stuff, I really want to quit my day job now and hop on board with a lot of the gig economy type stuff because I think the gig economy can get me much closer, much faster to the massive slush fund needed of $400 a week to pay my bills. For example, I was making $27.50 an hour on the weekends working for movinghelper.com a couple hours here and there. That's after-tax money also. I know this is a very personal question and I have to make the decision myself, but I'm Am I wrong for thinking this way? What I really want to do is build, design, and maintain and troubleshoot customized vegetable and pollinator gardens, but it's going to take time to build that business. To summarize, I'm thinking of quitting my day job and trying, trying on the gig economy in a major way to help replace my income while I build my business. Thank you, thank you, thank you for changing my life. Well, first of all, Andrew, I didn't change your life. You changed your life. I just gave you some things to think about to, uh, to encourage you in that direction. I always try to tell people that. Um, I don't get credit for changing your life. That way I don't get blamed for when you do things because I said something and screw something up. <laughs> uh, so in, in general, I don't have a problem with your line of thought at all. There's a couple of things I would ask you to think about. Number one, like, so an $11 an hour job, how hard is that to come by where you live? If you were here in Dallas-Fort Worth, I'd say, well, shit, you know, Amazon's hiring people on the spot for $14 an hour. So if you if you tried this and it didn't work, you could probably find a job paying more if you had to bail back in, so to speak, after you bailed out. So, you know, but do you live in a place where the reason you have an $11 an hour job is people are happy to have an $8 an hour job? Because those places exist. So that may, has a lot to do with, and, and then that's directly proportional to how big is the gig opportunity where you are. The Uber, op, the Uber economy, you know, the Rover and stuff. Like, how much of that work is there? How much competition is there for it? And how well does it pay? Uh, remember, you have to fit your own expenses right there. So, if you do this and you make about eight percent more after you pay the expenses that go along with it, uh, you're probably at a net loss, but you're definitely no better than a net even because. You're going to pay your own match in Social Security on this stuff, which, by the way, you have think about that when you're setting money aside from your side jobs as it is, uh, because that's the way it works when you're self-employed, right? Nobody's paying your your Social Security, so your Social Security is twice what you think it is right now. So that's another thing, like you know, and, and what have you, and the security of is there going to be work next week and whatever. Here's a couple thoughts I have. What if, I don't know, do you have vacation time? If you have vacation time, what you might do is take vacation for a week and go full-time with gigs and get a taste for it. And that way you haven't quit. And that gives you an idea of how much opportunity is really there. See, if you can make enough money to better your income by doing this, then by all means go ahead. It'll give you flexibility. You'll figure out peak times to work. When the best time to work is, you'll probably be able to create time for yourself for your other business that you want to try to build, you know, and see if you can make a go of that. Now, um, I am going to say something that you might think is kind of 
harsh on your dream here, but the, the, the reality is I don't know this or not, but I, I would be concerned about finding enough work putting in gardens for people from that standpoint. I mean, obviously you can, you can make a business as a landscaper if that's what you want to do because plenty of people do it. I've heard a lot of people talk about this type of thing. I want to install, you know, pollinator gardens and vegetable gardens for people. Um, you know, take a shot at it and see how it works. But the, the issue that you have with that type of a business is it's niche and it's not repeat business. So unless you can come up with a service side of it, every time you get a client, all the work you did to get that client pays off in that one, one fee. And then you have to do all that work to get another client and all that work to get another client. If you're going to be in a service type of business, then it makes a lot of sense to try to get into a service type of business that has a repeat component to it. You know, and, and, and my experience of talking to landscapers in the permaculture world, the conventional world, and what have you is, you know, there's not a lot of great business like that. People don't generally pay. You know, they'll pay for somebody to come mow their lawn and edge their sidewalks. Or they'll pay for somebody to come spray their lawn to keep it green. But generally, people don't pay for people to come back and prune trees and do stuff like that. So you might have to feel around in that space to find out what really works as well. So think about it twofold here. It's not just about going into the gig economy. It's also about if you want to build a business and the gig economy gives you the freedom to build that business because you control your own work time and stuff within the gig world, then, you know, you you end up in a, in a, in a, in a place where you, you, you got to be willing to be flexible with whatever that dream business is. And, and I'm not saying it won't work. I'm just saying, like, If I needed to go and start a, a, an independent business tomorrow, um, I would do something like clean pools. I know it's not super environmentally friendly and conscious and whatever like that, but I know from being a customer of that business that there's a lot of opportunity there. And then you have someone in the winter, you're coming every two weeks. In the summer, you're coming every week. You generally work twice as hard in the summer as the winter, but that means your, your winters are a lot easier Um, I don't even clean my own pool, but if I needed money, I would go clean other people's pools. Uh, and I'm not saying that go do that. I'm just saying, like, see, that that kind of, I got a customer, and now that customer is an hour a week all summer long for as long as I keep them. Where if I get an install job, it's install and go, and that works when you're doing things like doing $50,000 kitchen remodels, But I don't know that it works when you're doing $500 guard installations. You know, so if you can come up with the way to like put automation into it and stuff like that, then maybe you have not just a product sell, but an upsell and a cross sell and a highly referrable product. And I, you know, I think I would be looking to put in automation and things like that to make it a little bit sexier. Like, why would I hire you to build a box, fill it with dirt and put vegetables in it for me? You know, and if you're if you're going to take the approach of, you know, they'll come garden for you, unless you're doing spin farming or something like that, then the person, if you're, you're managing their three garden beds for them, they're better off just buying freaking food from the farmer's market at that point. So you got to figure out how to angle that. The pollinator thing, I like that. And that, that takes you more into the landscaping world. And I would, you know, a, a, a natural landscaping That's, that's pollinator insect friendly and help out the bees and have a beautiful yard and go perennial and stuff like that. You, you might be onto something there. I, I don't know. 
Anyway, I hope that that helps you. But if there's any way you can do it, I mean, if you have two weeks of vacation, it sucks to give up your vacation. But, you know, if you can't in two weeks make enough money to replace your income, you're probably not going to in four with this type of work because it's not... I guess you do get more, like as an Uber driver, you get more opportunity as you do more trips, but the opportunity is there from day one, and it should give you a good look at things. I like the kind of money you were making as a moving helper. I, I like that a lot, but, I mean, how much of that business is there where you, I don't know where you live, you know? So I don't know, you know, what the economy of, as a whole is like and how that will impact things. So hopefully that helps, man. But if you think you can do it, It'll never be easier to do than it is right now. It will only get harder every single day. That, that in the end, is the truth. And, again, if, if, if finding an $11 an hour job or getting your you know, do you work for a company that you say, hey, I want to go give this a shot, and you leave under uh, good graces with or this is the type of company that, you know, they're always hiring people, they always need good people, they would just take you back. You know, that makes it a lot softer as well of, a, of a, you know, a chance to fail. Because people say failure is not an option. Failure is always an option. You know, failure is always an option. Just ask the captain of the Titanic, right? Um, it's it's always possible. So we can't think that it, it it's all you know things will always work out, or we wouldn't prepare. So with that, I want to remind you guys that you can help support this show how by doing your online shopping at TSPAZ, of course, T S P A Z. Uh, tspaz.com tspaz.com go there you see all my reviews all the products I recommend uh, everything broken down by categories and what have you and uh, anytime you do your online shopping through tspaz.com you help the survival podcast and the work that we do and that brings us to our song of the day today our song of the day today is uh, one I, I, I don't think I quite expected when I heard it was gender bender week and one I hadn't heard in a uh, a very, very long time. The guy singing his name is Israel Kamakawoli. I think that's how you say his name. Is for short. And uh, this was a guy, many of you probably have seen him and you probably have heard this and just not ringing a bell for you. But the song is Somewhere Over the Rainbow, originally covered by Judy, or really originally uh, done by Judy Garland. Right? Somewhere over the rainbow. There I am. So Iz was this guy who was like this huge guy who weighed as much as I think at his heaviest, heaviest weight, like 750 pounds at six foot two. And, uh, just this huge, huge Hawaiian dude, um, that died at 38 years of age. And he was a super nice guy. He was a huge advocate for native Hawaiian rights and a fairly talented musician, this giant guy playing this little bitty ukulele, and he sung a lot of songs like this, and his voice is just not what you would expect. Like, if you if you heard this guy sing and then saw him, you'd be like, wow. Or if you saw him and then heard him sing, you're like, wow. And I think that was part of his appeal. And again, super, super nice guy. And um, when I looked at this video that, that went along with this, um... There were a lot of people saying like things like he's not dead, he's just over the rainbow and, and what have you. And you know, I do believe there is something after we pass from this existence into another plane, dimension, form, entity. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't claim to know that, but I do believe just based on logic and reason there is something. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean I want to get there quickly. And as much as I appreciate this guy and as much as I, I, I like that everybody's talking so nicely about him and all, if he wasn't 700 pounds, he wouldn't be over the rainbow. He'd still be with us. He died at 38. 
And there's there's a place for taking care of yourself, and it's more than just you know your weight. And if you want to be around, if you want to make the most of your dash, one of the ways you make the most of your dash isn't just doing really good shit while you can. It's to make that dash as long as possible. You want your dash to be long, right? You want it to go off into the horizon and over the curvature of the earth, flat earth, as it's there, it'll disappear. You want it to keep going as long as possible. You know, you want that dash to be in the 70, 80, 90 year or longer realm. You don't want that dash to only be 38 years long. You know, if I think about it that way, being 45, I would have been gone over seven years ago. And, and that's just, that's, that's, that's not what you want. So as, as much as I appreciate the, uh, the, the kind words of people, and nobody ever wants to say anything bad about someone you know, huge, we're not just talking about somebody a little bit overweight or even just obese. We're talking about you know, absolute, ridiculous, morbid obesity. And uh, I, I don't know if there were, and I, would, I actually imagine there were certain health problems this guy had that made that a more difficult struggle. But, you know, obesity, when someone gets put into a regiment where they don't have a choice and their, their, their meals are controlled, is cured 100% of the time, no matter what anybody wants to say. And the whole healthy at any size movement is lunacy. Uh, so let it be a lesson there. Now the song itself, it's uh, it's a beautiful song, and it's a good song to end the week with. And I hope to see you guys soon, and hopefully we won't be over that rainbow together for quite a long time. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Why? 